There was a book that came out a few, now several years ago, on Christian ministry called The Trellis and the Vine. Some of you might have heard of that, The Trellis and the Vine. In this book, the authors um, spoke about Christian ministry in basically two simple categories. There is trellis work and there is vine work. And the metaphor goes as this. Trellis work is creating administrative details and structures so that the vine can grow on the trellis. And the vine are people. The book would go on to show that some are naturally inclined to do trellis work. Some are naturally inclined to do vine work. There are people people. And then there are everybody else in the world, administrative people. <laughs> if you're an administrative person, you might like the passage today. If you're a people person, you're really going to like the passage today. It actually has both. This is Exodus 18, and this is Jethro's advice and conversion. It has been almost three months since Israel has left Egypt. And in those three months, we have seen one recorded song and a lot of grumbling. One praise and quarrels and testing of the Lord and grumbling. As Moses has led the people out of Egypt, going towards Sinai, where they will worship, the emphasis has not been on praise. It has not been on, uh, as we learned in Sunday school, getting along and having a like-mindedness with one another. The emphasis has been on what kind of bunch are these people? <laughs> They're a grumbling, complaining, testing of the Lord bunch. And as we have seen in chapters, the end of chapter 15, 16, and 17, tension is brewing between the people of God, Israel, and their leader, Moses. So much so that last chapter they wanted to stone him and uh, get rid of him, right? And what we have in this scene is the, the news that comes out of Egypt, the good news that Israel saved, the, the enemies put down, has spread far and wide, even to Jethro and Midian. Jethro gets converted, and as he comes and meets Moses, he tells Moses, you're handling this group of people all wrong. All wrong. His advice is important because as the news spreads, more people will come to the Lord. And as more people come to the Lord, the existing tension between Moses and the people will only exponentially grow, depending on, given how Moses has been handling this. And we'll, we'll see this here, but anybody, <laughs> anybody who stood in line at a California DMV knows what Moses is feeling, and the people. Now, not Wyoming DMVs, they're like, Shangri-La. They're Edenic and amazing and you're in and out. No problem. Not other places. 
they are much more vile. But this is, this is uh, the situation. The people are getting frustrated with how Moses is shepherding them. Moses is getting frustrated, and yet the news is going out. So what we have here is the spread of the good news demands faithful government and leadership. The spread of the gospel demands faithful government and leadership. There are a litany of ways in which people order church, do church government, or have church polity. Some of them are better than others. And unfortunately, some take him from this chapter, which is not designed to be from that, chiefly. But throughout this, we will see that it is the power of the news, the power of the good news, and the burden of the minister, which creates this tension. The power of the gospel, going out, converting people, and the hard work to do the impossible task to shepherd those people. So, you know, this is just what we have next in our diet of Exodus. Um, and uh, there are plenty of applications, not only for you, but also for the minister, myself, Don, any, any minister of the Lord. And this isn't supposed to be a, a spotlight on anyone in particular, but just this is, this is God's family. And this is how things happen and, and should be ordered. So let's look first at this good news spreading abroad, converting many and reaching Jethro. Follow along as I read verses 1 to 12. Jethro, a priest of Midian, Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how the Lord, Yahweh, had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, Moses' wife, after he had sent her home, along with her two sons. The name of the one was Gershom, for he said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land. And the name of the other, Eliezer, for he said, the God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with his sons and his wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. And when he sent word for Moses, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. Moses went out to meet his father-in-law and bowed down and kissed him. And they asked each other of their welfare and went into the tent. Then Moses told his father-in-law all that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake all the hardship that had come upon them in the way and how God and how the, and how Yahweh had delivered them. And Jethro rejoiced for all the good that Yahweh had done to Israel in that he had delivered them out of the hands of the Egyptians. Jethro said, blessed be Yahweh who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods because in this affair, they dealt arrogantly with the people. And Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. And Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses 
with Moses' father-in-law before God. Okay, so here is the scene. Jethro in Midian, a ways away from where they are at the mountain of God, which is Mount Horeb, also known as Sinai, comes to this huge multitude of people and he brings Zipporah, Moses' wife, and their two kids. Presumably, Moses had sent Zipporah and his two kids away before things got really ugly in Egypt. So now Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, brings them back. They have a reunion. And what is striking in this encounter between Jethro and Moses, which we are constantly reminded is Moses' father-in-law, is of all the good things Yahweh did for Israel throughout the chapter. But primarily, look at this, in verse 1. Heard of all, the go- heard of all that God had done for Moses. And later on in verse 1, how Yahweh had brought Israel out of Egypt. And look in verse 4. Even Eliezer is named after this. The God of my father was my help and delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Verse 8. All that Yahweh had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake, all the hardship that had come upon them by, in the way and how Yahweh had delivered them. Verse 9. Jethro was rejoiced for all that the good that Yahweh had done to Israel. Verse 10. Jethro blesses the Lord who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of Pharaoh, and has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. Which, just by the way, really makes you wonder what Jesus was intending in John 10 when he tells the people, no one will snatch my people out of my hand. There is a three-time repeated emphasis here on the hand of the Egyptians and Pharaoh and the people under uh, the Egyptians. And Yahweh has powerfully, powerfully redeemed them. We can go back and summarize all the plagues, but an awesome display over a matter of weeks, maybe months, from Aaron's serpent, uh, Aaron's staff, swallowing up the Egyptians' magician staff, to the very last plague, which was the Red Sea. Or if you're, we're being traditional, the death of the firstborn. But nevertheless, there are these dozens of signs which Yahweh used to showcase not only to Israel, but also to Pharaoh, Yahweh's great power. So they talk about this act, this good news. And Jethro's response to this is he blesses Yahweh, he rejoices, and he adopts Yahweh as his God and worships him with a meal before God. Do you see that in verse 12? In verse 10, he starts the blessing, the praise, attributing highest praise to Yahweh. And then Moses' father-in-law, Jethro, Moses, and Aaron, and all the elders of Israel come together and they eat bread with Jethro before God. 
before God. Little glimmer, little hint of the Lord's table. That's what salvation is. It is just a, the Lord's table, salvation, it's just a hint of what we will have in eternity forever with the marriage feast of the Lamb. Dining and dwelling with the Lord. So this is Jethro's conversion. The word has gone out. The enemy is gone. Israel's impossible deliverance has sounded forth. And Jethro heard this way over in Midian. Way over in Midian. He didn't hear of it just now when he came to Moses. In verse 1, it says he already heard of what God had done. So this news that has resounded out from Egypt is going out. Jethro being a, one of the recipients of it. We have a, a commentary on this action of the Exodus in Deuteronomy 4. God says this through Moses speaking to the people. Has any God ever attempted to go and take a nation for himself from the midst of another nation? So Yahweh is saying, I'm going to do something that has never been done before. An impossible task. You might say it is impossible as raising someone from the dead. No one has ever created a nation and taken a nation out from the midst of another nation by trials, by signs, by wonders, and by war, by a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, and by great deeds of terror, all of which Yahweh your God did for you in Egypt before your eyes. He's doing something that never has happened before. And this is the redemption the Lord brings. This is the, this is the news, the sound of redemption. This news, this good news needs no interpreter. And it needs no messenger. God did not save Israel out of Egypt and then send various missionary Jews to the various places to evangelize. This news needs no messenger or interpreter. Now, I'm not saying the gospel doesn't need to be explained or uh, the gospel doesn't have uh, answers for certain questions, of course, sure. But uh, the power of the message is self-evident. It is self-attesting. The news makes sense in and of itself that Israel, a rather grumbly, ragtag bunch of people, get brought out from the most powerful nation of the day, needs no explanation. Only God can do that. There was no arm twisting, I don't think, for Jethro. I don't think there's any arm twisting for the mixed multitude who left Egypt with Israel. I don't think there's any arm twisting for Rahab in Jericho when she hid the spies. The news was self-evident. It, it made sense, and all it needed to do is to be received. This is the message of God's good news. It spreads out, 
and it converts under its own power. Under its own power. Yes, ministers, apostles, prophets, preachers, teachers, evangelists. Yes, they are used as a means. But it is the power of the word which goes out with the word, which is converting the people. Listen to what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. So Paul's saying, we proclaim a message which is inherently powerful. It needs no elocution. It needs no proper pronunciation. It needs no alliteration. It needs no anything. It just needs to be proclaimed and sounded forth, and it will do the converting. It is a powerful message, not just that it has a powerful effect on the soul, but it is powerful in itself. You can, you can hear a lot of cool things. You can watch Boromir's death in Lord of the Rings and have an effect on your soul. You can hear the crescendo finale of the Swan Lake by Tchaikovsky and have a powerful effect on your soul, but they are not inherently powerful to convert. Many things are good and are proclaimed, but only one message is actually powerful enough to convert the person on its own. Colossians 1 says, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. Paul's telling the Colossians, this word of truth, this gospel is going forth and it's bearing fruit. It is like day one, two, three, four, five, and six of creation where it is being a creative power going out and creating new hearts creating new hearts and multiplying and bearing fruit. And of course, because you're all excellent listeners, I don't have to say this, but you remember what we learn in 1 Thessalonians. What Paul says to the Thessalonians about the gospel. Because our gospel came to you not only in word, Because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Paul says, there is nothing I'm doing here. As Luther would say to his ministry, the word did it all. It was nothing of myself. The word does it all. So what are we to take away from this? Share it. Share the news. It is not up to the Christian to convert anybody. That is a burden nobody can fulfill. But there is a burden you can 
carry, which is actually a, a, a delight. And that is speak the word. Speak the message. In the message of the gospel of Christ is enough of the work of the spirit. Because the, the word goes out and the spirit go out and they go out in tandem. All you have to do is say, Jesus died for your sins. Repent and believe. You want to find true hope, happiness, safety, peace? Flee sin. Find rest in Christ. That message does the converting. It is not on the believer. Look at Jethro. He's minding his own business. He hears of the news, and by the power of God in the message, he gets converted. Okay, so that's for the people people. Now for you trellis people, you very lovely and necessary people. This is the overwhelmed mediator here in verses 13 to 27. Once Jethro is accepted into the community, he witnesses how disorderly things are and advises them to change lest Moses and the people burn out. Verse 13. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people and the people stood around Moses from morning till evening. When Moses' father-in-law saw all that he was doing for the people, he said, what is this that you are doing for the people? Why do you sit alone and all the people stand around you from morning till evening? And Moses said to his father-in-law, because the people come to me to inquire of God. When they have a dispute, they come to me and I decide between one person and another and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. You and the people with you will certainly wear yourselves out for the thing is too heavy for you. You are not able to do it alone. Now obey my voice. I will give you advice and God be with you. You shall represent the people before God and bring their cases to God. And you shall warn them about the statutes and the laws and make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. Moreover, look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy and hate a bribe, and place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law and did all that he had said. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times, any hard case they brought to Moses, but any smaller matter they decided themselves. Then Moses let his father-in-law depart, and he went away to his own country. 
Okay. The word has gone out. Bells are ringing. Good news is happening. At the other, on the other hand, an already disgruntled bunch is going to grow. <laughs> and only more tension will exist between the one mediator, Moses, and the growing number of people. So how are they to be cared for? How are they to be governed? How are they to be shepherded? Just by way of note, we should remind ourselves that this is a church state people. This is a both religious and a civil organization. This is, even though there are many applications to church life and for raising up elders and finding shepherds and delegating work, this is a nation which is both civil and religious. So any application to this, which is almost absolute and just kind of mimicked verbatim, it, it, it doesn't work in the church, unless the church is calling itself to be a state, which I would advise you not to go to. <laughs> so, but this is a, a church state people, and Moses is handling their issues, not only of civil matters, probably already spiritual matters. And he sees... Jethro sees this frustration building and he, and he sees these things and he gives advice and advice is multifaceted. First, he says, Moses, essentially you've been faithful at going about this person by person, but that's not the way to go. Okay. Moses has tried wisely and with faithfulness to handle each person in their own case case-by-case case situation. But that kind of approach isn't going to work. Everyone feels loved. Everyone feels like, oh, wow, when I talk to Moses, he's really looking at me and paying attention to me, and there's no one else exists in the world. That can't happen <laughs> for a multitude of this size. So he's, next, he says, if things continue as is, burnout will happen for Moses and the people. Because this one work is too heavy for one man. Next, he tells Moses he needs to continue to represent God to the people in verse 18 uh, and 19. And, so to, and, and somewhat of what we learned last week with keeping one hand on the throne. Moses, you need to keep relaying and mediating between Yahweh and the people. Don't stop that, but stop the particulars. Namely, you need to teach them all how to live in verse 20. There should be some kind of public or corporate teaching so that they know the statutes and laws of Yahweh and they know in themselves how they must walk and what they should do. They shouldn't have to come you for every single matter, right? Next, Moses, you need to appoint appellate judges, inferior courts for smaller matters. And these courts, these judges need to be men who you appoint, who are able men, they're, they're capable, they're competent. They're men who fear the Lord, verse 21. They are trustworthy 
and they can't be bought off. They can't be bought off. I mean, you have a nomadic tribe of thousands of people walking through the desert. I don't know what they're going to bribe them with other than maybe goats or cattle or whatever it is. Maybe trading children. (laughs) But they can't be bought off. They need to be men of the Lord. They need to be above reproach. And then lastly, he says, if you do this, and in verse 23, there's a little parenthetical note, God will direct you, probably best translated as, if this is pleasing to the Lord, you will be able to endure. You can endure. The proper kind of trellis work, the proper kind of administrative structure to shepherd people, and all their multitude of problems will happen, will work if you take my advice. Just to bring this into our day and age, this is, this is very obvious to see. Ministry is much, much too large, demanding for one person. It's too demanding for a group of elders, let alone one man. There is way, way too much going on. Some of you probably have had experience in Christian ministry, maybe even pastoral ministry, where you know what ministry looks like. (laughs) And I will be candid. Ministry is an absolute joy and hard. But it's not just the people that make it hard. I don't have to go far, and my own heart is with me everywhere I go. I make my own, my own work hard. But ministry is challenging, taxing, demanding, and it is ultimate. It is bringing one person, by God's grace, out of the kingdom of darkness and getting that person to the celestial city with no, with, with his least backsliding as possible, no apostasy, no multiplying of error, no hearing of error. It is an absolute joy to do. And so, so, so very hard. Ministry has no on and off button. 24-7, serving the Lord all the time. In ministry, and this isn't just pastoral ministry, personal conflict of fellow Christians is frequent and extremely time-consuming. Speaking of, of ministers, there are often unrealistic expectations um, of ministers preach like Sproul, counsel like David Pallison, you know, have 60 years of wisdom and you're only 40 kind of thing. It doesn't help, it doesn't do good for anybody. Ministry can be isolating. You have to make tough choices. You can have a lack of friends in ministry. Now, as I'm going through some of these descriptions, this is not to scare anyone off from getting involved in anyone else's lives. (laughs) 
but to say actually quite the opposite, jump in, the water is great. Yes, it's choppy at times, but it's a joy. It can be isolating. You can have, you can lose friends, dear friends. There can be financial stress. There can be the negative impact of family. The congregation sometimes is not thankful to the minister, nor uh, really appreciative of anybody's work in your life. That not only goes from the congregation to minister, but you know, a good friend counsels another good friend, something very important, and there's just no, no reciprocity of love there. Ministry is pouring out yourself with the realistic expectation that the measure in which you will get back is smaller. At least it feels that way. Just speaking from the heart. You pour yourself out like a drink offering, Paul says. The abiding comfort is the supreme goal of it all. The spiritual labor, and as Paul would describe I don't know if half is the right number, but some of you have experienced. He says to the Galatians, he is in labor until Christ is formed in them. I've never been in labor. My beautiful wife has. And I've just seen it. Doesn't look easy. But there is a labor which is going on in ministry because of the hard task. So I'm not saying this to be in any like self-serving way, but these are just some of the things that we have to be mindful of. We are a family of the Lord and families need sometimes to have family talk. There are realistic problems for this work, but it is chiefly a spiritual work. The spiritual progress which happens in a Christian's life happens not just by going out to coffee or having someone over at night. There's prayerful labor. There's counsel to give. There's an emotional and physical taxing work that happens because you care about the other person's heart. Paul would say in Colossians 1, let me flip over there. This is a wonderful passage at the end of chapter 1 of Colossians. He says, and, and this is like, this is the verse everyone champions. Like this is on the church bulletins. It's on like, you know, church billboards and things like that. Him we proclaim. Yes, we preach Christ. Oh, that sounds so nice and romantic and like cool. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. If you're visiting here and you're not a member or you're maybe not sure what church you're being called to, get in a church which prizes your maturity in Christ above pretty much all else. 
That even means having to tell you sometimes some things you don't want to hear. But no pastor is worth his salt if he is afraid of telling you what you need to hear for the sake of your spiritual progress. So he says, him we proclaim, we warn everyone, we teach everyone, we want to present everyone mature in Christ. For, because this I toil, struggling with all his energy, God's energy, that he powerfully works within me. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love to reach, get this, all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Just a couple, just a couple things to point out here. <laughs> Ministries work. Look at the words he uses. Verse 29, toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So Paul is struggling. He's not just, you know, spinning his wheels. He's actually working under God's power. But this is how we know this is safe to talk about. Like if this is making anyone awkward, Paul has no problem telling the Colossians who he's never met in person. Okay. He's never met the Colossians. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Okay. If, if, if most people were to tell someone else, let me tell you about my job and how I'm working for you. <laughs> when the president does that, it, we just turn off the TV. We don't even want to hear it. When someone tells you, let me tell you why my job is important and how I work so hard for you. Like that's just virtue signaling, we would think. But it's okay when Paul does this because he is doing this with a pastoral purpose that they would say, oh, Paul is struggling out, sweating for my spiritual progress. And my spiritual progress is simple, that I would reach the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. He basically says, I am working on your behalf to introduce you to Christ time and time and time again. I think it was Goodwin or Sibs, Thomas Goodwin or Richard Sibs says, the ministers are just friends of the bride, bridegroom. They're just telling you, they're just pointing to the bride. That's all. They're just pointing to the bridegroom. We are nothing. All we do is want to make sure the saint has reached full assurance of knowing Christ. Who has reached full assurance of knowing Christ? On some days, by God, by the grace of God, you might say, I am 
saved, I am delivered, I am fully assured of that. And two days later, well, what was Israel's experience? Oh, praise Yahweh. He's thrown horse and rider into the sea. Days later, why did he ever bring us here? To kill us? That is about as a human experience as you can get. (laughs) I love the Lord. I love the Lord. He must hate me. It's spiritual schizophrenia. But this is why Don, other ministers, labor, lose sleep, get ulcers, experience pain of all sorts. It's not just to virtue signal, oh, look how much the minister works for me. It's because of the Christ who we desire to make clear day after day. So then there's a a hanging problem here. A lot about Moses as the mediator. He's doing something wrong. It gets fixed by Jethro. We have some application to our own life about how churches should raise up elders, right? Men who are of good repute, above reproach. It can't happen to one man. Just Don? No, just me? No way. has to be a team of people who fear the Lord, who can't be bought off. So what is the congregation's responsibility? The congregation's responsibility is very, very, very simple. And it's found in verse 20. He tells Mo, Mo, Jethro tells Moses, teach the people how to live. Teach the people how to live. Often when someone asks me, what can I do to serve the church? I love this church. I want to serve the church. I want to bless the church. The first thing that comes in my head, whether I actually say it or not, is usually just to walk closely with Jesus. Just walk closely with Christ. That will handle the VBS substitutions. That will handle the, the, the Lord's table elements. That will handle the potluck shortage of uh, stuff. <laughs> Walking dearly and nearly with Jesus is the greatest gift you can give your fellow Christian, minister or not. The best blessing you can be to someone else is to walk with Jesus and he will sanctify you and that will actually be the problem-solving solution. Everything else is just Band-Aids, you know? What can I do to, what can I do to help the church? Um, I don't know. Can you sing vocals? Uh, Nancy gets worn out playing the piano. Can you play a piano? Uh, that's all Band-Aid. That's all Band-Aid. The root of the issue is where is the heart of the Christian? Is the Christian walking with the Lord and doing what they must do? That's all. That, that's that's the only onus I would say is on the congregational member to live upon God and how that will flow out so much harmony and blessings to everybody else.
we are in complete dependence on the Lord for this. We are at the mercy of God for any progress spiritually in our life. Moses is a great type of Christ here. He has redeemed, humanly speaking, Israel out of Egypt. He has been Yahweh's chosen vessel to bring Israel out of bondage and slavery. He has prayed for them and interceded for them like a priest. He has also spoken to them God's very words as a prophet. He has been a redeemer, a priest, and a prophet. And Moses was an eminently godly man, humble man, capable man. If anybody's shoulders could handle the burden that this job required, humanly speaking, it would be Moses. But it is, it is even too much for him. Our only trust is in our Lord Jesus Christ. The hope isn't in me. The hope isn't in Don. The hope isn't in the congregation. The hope isn't in anybody but one person alone, the Lord Jesus Christ. Only he has the shoulders strong enough to provide wise counsel, intercede for his people all the time with sympathy, true sympathy. You ever pray for someone and you're not really caring about that prayer request, but you know you should pray for it anyways? Jesus knows us through and through, and it is only on his shoulders that we can prosper. There was no way, there was absolutely no way for Israel to make it from Egypt to Canaan on Moses alone. And there's, and there's no way that any of us can make it from calling Satan our father to calling God our Father and getting into glory than without Christ. Jesus is our Lord, our priest, our prophet, and he is our only hope, and he bears us up, and he will, because he promises, successfully lead us to glory. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, to you alone be glory, not only for our initial conversion, but for sustaining us throughout our sojournings and bringing us home to the promised land. We are looking not for a city that has foundations on this earth, but a heavenly city. Grant us that sight one day. Remind us that all our hope is not on a preacher or a friendship with another Christian or a certain counselor, which is very astute and observant 
to our problems. Your son, Jesus Christ, is our great physician and he is our great shepherd. We pray this in his name. Amen. You can stand for our next song.